Hello and welcome to All Beings. I'm your host, Tyler White. Today's episode is brought to you, as always, by Jackson White, Attorneys of Law, a full-service law firm in the state of Arizona, and by Birdie Scrubs, the most comfortable medical apparel on the planet. We have a fabulous show today. Uh, Lin Su Cooney, she, has, uh, she was a staple in Arizona news for over 30 years as a news anchor. Um, so many of you might know her uh, in that context. Now she is at Hospice of the Valley, and um, she, she has no regrets in making that, making that transition. We have a lovely conversation. She entirely changed my perspective on hospice and, in fact, inspired me to perhaps become a hospice volunteer myself. Um, I think you're going to learn a lot in this conversation. She is very articulate and very passionate about what she does. And so without any further ado, um, I bring to you Lin Su Cooney. Hello and welcome to All Beings. Hey, we have a great show today. Um, I'm your host, Tyler White, and we have the privilege of speaking with Lin Su Cooney. Lynn, how are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me as a guest today. It's totally my pleasure. Um, I would I would love to introduce you myself, but I, I'd probably uh, be doing you a disservice. And so I know you've had a long career in Arizona, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you uh, give an overview of, of kind of what your prolific, prolific career has been. Well, let's see. I moved to Arizona uh, in 1984 to take a job as a newscaster at the NBC affiliate KPNX Channel 12. And I worked there, believe it or not, for 31 years uh, before retiring in 2015 when my two youngest sons were about to start high school at Brophy. And I kind of wanted to be home in the evenings because as a newscaster, you're not getting home till, you know, after 11 p.m. Sure. Um, and Boy, I just um, loved every minute of that career, but cannot describe the joy I have with this new career. Um, the mission is so beautiful, uh, giving people comfort and dignity at the end of life. Um, so it's been a, a, a crazy transition in some ways. People can't really understand how I got there, but it, it all makes sense because I had a personal experience with a family member with Hospice of the Valley, and that's how I ended up transitioning. Um, but, you know, news is pretty fun, uh, and it was, a, it was a wonderful way to make connections in the Valley with, you know, every kind of community group and community leader, and those things now can um, help us get the word out about the care that's available to people in our community. Those connections are now helping with Hospice of the Valley. Yeah. You know, it's a little surreal interviewing you or talking to you because I, <laughs> I, I, as a kid, I, those were the days when, you know, mom and dad had the local news on. Um, those those days are kind of gone, but we get our news in different places now. But um, yeah. I remember seeing you on the news all the time as a kid. Um so you talked about your, your new career, and in, in, in that career is you're, you're working in, in what capacity at Hospice of the Valley? So my title is Director of Community Engagement, and it really means that I'm educating and um, presenting and connecting all of the programs and services that Hospice of the Valley offers to our community. The folks here are absolute healthcare angels, and they are so focused on caring for patients and families on a very vulnerable journey time in their life. And they are not um, marketing. They're not, that's not where their head is. Uh, but someone in the, someone needs to be in the community and tell the community, did you know that we have care for chronic illness? It's not just end of life. Did you know that we take care of kiddos that are dying, that are medically mm -hmm. fragile and have life-limiting diseases, not just older people? Mm -hmm. Did you know that we have dementia care? So did you know that we have all these free services like senior placement and community grief support? So that's been my joy has been able is being able to connect the community to things that they, the resources they had no idea existed. Wow. It's almost as if you're an educator of source. Um, yeah. Yeah, so pretty much. That's, that's, that's fantastic. And you mentioned that you had a, 
you had a personal experience that drew you to this career. Um, would you mind sharing what that is? Sure. Uh, in 2005, my father-in-law had, um, he was riding in an SUV to Costco with his wife and he kind of clutched his heart and said something wasn't right. She scooted over and got out of the car to, to drive and take him to the hospital, saw a motorcycle policeman, flagged him down and he even got a police escort to the hospital. They discovered he had an aortic dissection. His aorta was tearing from his heart. Oh, no. So they did emergency surgeries. Um, he did not uh, recover from some massive strokes that happened during the surgeries. And um, so we brought him home and my mother-in-law put him on hospice care. And again, that is the beauty of hospice care. It, it's in your home where you're surrounded by the people and the things that you love. So he was in the family room, the whole family moved in, all the kids and spouses and grandkids. And we had about a um, almost a week with him. And it was a beautiful ending to a beautiful life. Um, he got to, to go out with comfort and dignity and compassionate care surrounded by everyone that meant everything to him. So I never forgot that because everybody knows what hospice is intellectually. Mm -hmm. You don't know it until you've experienced it. So once I had experienced it as a newscaster, I wanted to help this nonprofit group with news stories or emceeing some of their nonprofit events, um, like a memorial that they do every year around Thanksgiving to honor those we love called Light Up a Life. And as the years went on, I just um, had a soft spot for them. As many people who have had our care do, they'll all come back and volunteer for us or come to work for us even. Um, and I just felt like it was such an amazing thing. So when I decided that I wanted to leave news uh, to be there for my kids in the evening, I met with Hospice of the Valley and um, my skill set for being out in the community and helping to connect people to the care was a perfect fit. And I just, I feel like in a way, my career, God had planned it so that my career in news was going to set me up to be um, of the most use to this nonprofit now. That's, that's wonderful. Where where does that myth come from? A lot of people think of hospice as, as a place that they place that people go, um, uh, kind of just a place that people go to die. Where does where does that come from? Well, because a hospice is end of life care. It's actually an English word um, that's a derivative of or a Latin word that is an English concept of care that is a derivative from the word um, hospitum, which is hospitality. So think about what you do when you're, you're uh, extending hospitality, you're making people comfortable in a home, right? Mm -hmm. So that is what hospice care is. You're making people comfortable in their home. And because it's at end of life, people associate hospice with death, but really it's the philosophy of care that supports you when a terminal disease is killing you. So it's almost like some people hate the dentist because they um, get cavities. What they're really mad at is the cavity, not the dentist, <laughs> but they still fear the dentist. So, I, I mean, I kind of see it that way. Um, and so there are a lot of fears about the H word hospice and there are a lot of misconceptions. People think it's very expensive. I mean, you have people coming, a whole team of people, nurses, doctors, certified nursing assistants, social workers, chaplains, um, they're all coming to your home. That must be expensive. Well, if you're 65 and over and have Medicare, you're 100% covered. Wow. And in our case in Arizona, we're very, very lucky. Hospice of the Valley is a nonprofit. So if you have not a penny, to pay for your care, we care for you exactly the same way. Hmm. Um, that's why we fundraise in the community. That's why we're very, very fiscally responsible with the dollars that Medicare does give us for patients who are on Medicare so that we can provide. Um, last year, I think it was $10 million, over $10 million in charity care. So it's not expensive, it's covered, or we provide it anyway. Wow. Some people think well, I'm going to lose my doctor. We know your doctor knows you better than anyone. So we work with your doctor um, to give you care at end of life. You don't lose your doctor. Hospices are not the same. A lot of people think uh, that's true. That's a big myth. Just like um, all law practices are not the same. You know, they vary in, in, in areas of expertise and years of experience and philosophy of care. 
Uh, they're all very different. Uh, people think, well, if I sign up on hospice, I can't ever change my mind. I'm on hospice forever. It's not true. A lot of times people are very, uh, you know, they're, uh, they come very broken down by the uh, aggressive treatments, you know, lots of rounds of chemo or radiation yeah. and their bodies are weak and they go on a hospice and all of a sudden they aren't on those curative treatments anymore and their appetite comes back and the sores in their mouth and their stomach heal and they put on weight and they feel great. They sign themselves off hospice and maybe go get another treatment. Um, you're free to do whatever you want. Uh, you can change your mind at any time. You're in control. And then if you come back when your disease process is more advanced, the benefit waits for you. It hasn't diminished. It, it doesn't disappear. It isn't shortened. You can just uh, continue where you left off. So it doesn't run out. And, and I think the last myth is people think, oh, if I go on hospice, it's going to hurry up my death. Mm-hmm. That is such a uh, um, disturbing concept because our goal is to help you live every moment, not to cheat you out of one second of, of your death, but to improve your quality of life for as long as you have. And as I said, a lot of people come to hospice and they actually end up extending their lives because they're not on those very harsh, aggressive, curative treatments. Yeah, it seems like sometimes the people get over-medicated and that, that is actually more problematic than, than not having the medication at all. So my understanding of hospice, and, and you're the expert here, is uh, you need a physician certification that you have six months or less left to live. Is that, is that, the, is that kind of the, the rule? So Medicare has a definition. They, they want you to have a terminal illness. And if your doctor was to be a fortune teller, which they're not, uh, and predict the normal course of the disease, they're guessing you have six months or less. Uh, many patients have much longer and many patients have much shorter. Uh, but that's the, you know, the main criteria. So then they would refer you to a hospice. And then you would just be reviewed every six months to make sure that you are still declining. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to be getting worse and worse and worse. It just means that you're not getting better okay. to the point where you don't need hospice care. And if that happens, and sometimes it does, we call it graduation. You mm-hmm. graduate off hospice, and you go live your life. And as the disease progresses and gets more advanced and you come back on, okay. then we're waiting for you. So you're just reviewed every six months. And it's indefinite. It doesn't expire. You could, in theory, Correct. stay on hospice for, for, well, for the rest of your life, whatever that means. Yeah. Months and months. Yeah, it could years be three years. years. We've had patients for three years. Wow. And I imagine the relationships with those patients becomes very rich and endearing. Yes, you are so right. Our care teams um, really bond with patients that they have um, time with. And, it, and it's lovely because that's how the trust is built. That's how the support is built. Uh, you know, a lot of times when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, your friends just, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know if it's a good time to visit. So they don't. And you're alone and you don't have your job anymore. So your social network's gone. And your best constant source of um, comfort is that care team that comes to see you in your home. And um, it's, it's a beautiful bond. They're there to support you. And they do this for a living. So they're not afraid of the death word. They're not afraid of dying or talking about your symptoms or what you're feeling spiritually or psychologically. Uh, they're trained. And so it's a very freeing and secure kind of support um, that most of us would really, really benefit from at the end of our lives. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so the, so the team, uh, it, it consists of, uh, uh, what does the team consist of? Well, you have a medical director at the very top who works, you know, and our, and the teams work with your own doctor. And then there would be a nurse who comes to see you. There would be a social worker that helps you with any, um, healthcare decisions you have to make any community resources, maybe you can't cook, so you need to have meals on wheels, or you need transportation because you can't drive to your appointments anymore, so you might need dial-a-ride. So we would connect you to community resources. Um, there's a chaplain for spiritual um, comfort. Uh, many many people 
really, really need that at the end of their lives. And then we're, we're lucky because we also have a certified nursing assistant who comes in and helps bathe you and dress you and help with the activities of daily living. And then we're um, very blessed because we have volunteers. We have 2,100 volunteers. Wow. They do all sorts of things, but the bulk of them come in and they are companions. They come in and they watch movies with you. They take walks with you. They visit with you. Um, they're just your friend, someone who keeps you company because you don't have it um, anymore when you're on this journey and you're not at work every day or what, whatever your life was before that. Wow. There are a couple of people that I look up to that I know are hospice volunteers. How does one go about becoming a volunteer? Well, we have a website, hob.org, or you can just pick up the phone and call us and they would transfer you to our volunteer department. But there is a form on our website. You fill it out and you tell us if you've got any special skills like you love to sew, because um, maybe you want to do these activity aprons for our dementia patients, or maybe you sing. And so you're going to be a music therapist, or maybe you have an amazing dog and you want to go through the process to be a pet therapist. I, I'm a pet therapy team with my dog, by the way, mm. for Hospice Valley. So there's, or you just want to go and be a friend. You know, maybe you walked your mom or dad or your grandma or your grandpa through a hospice journey and you think you have a lot to offer now because you understand what they're going through. Um, and you'd be just the perfect companion, but you do get training. It's an orientation on two weekends. Um, and I teach part of that training and I'll tell you, we have kids that come in that are med students mm -hmm. and we have people who come in that are in their seventies and they're just amazing because they're there just for the heart of it. They want to be a companion to someone on this journey. Wow. Everybody, everybody has stories that they look to as, as success stories. Um, and I'm sure that I'm sure that you have a variety of these. Um, can you share one or two of these stories with us? Yeah, I, I love it. So one of the very first patients I met uh, with my pet therapy dog was Inga and she was in her 80s and very ill. Uh, and she kind of, you know, kind of lost the will to go on and our, our team's she signed on to our service and our teams just loved her and they found out about her life. And she was a nurse for a long time at St. Joe's, but she was an artist, a pet artist. You could give her a photograph of your dog or cat and she would make it come to life in a sketch. It was unbelievable. Wow. So they got her some things to draw with and she started drawing. She started making cards and selling them in gift shops. She came alive again and um, I would go visit her with my dog and uh, one of our other employees here would just go by every Tuesday and bring her pizza and they'd have lunch together. We just ended up bonding um, and it just really changed the quality of her life. So when I think about how she would have been, had no one been in her life and taken an interest in her, how she would have just withered away and how instead she went out just enjoying life to the fullest and do and returning to um, kind of a hobby, a love of hers, a passion of hers, because her profession was a nurse, but a passion of hers at the very end of her life. Um, those are the kinds of stories I love. And our, our teams are really good about finding out what somebody's dream is and then making it happen. You know, we, we just did a um, huge uh, surprise anniversary dinner for a couple that have been married 25 years. She doesn't have long. Uh, and so they can't go out to a restaurant. She's, she's much too sick for that. And she doesn't think she'll get to 26 years. So uh, hubby took her out on an errand while we set the table and had this elegant seafood dinner put out. And she came in and was so surprised. And the first thing she said is she turned to him and she said, no wonder you didn't want to stop for cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to stall her and get her back. Um, but it's just lovely. I, I could go on all day long. Your podcast would go on for days about all of the, the fun things and the beautiful, touching, lovely things, drive-by birthday parties and just wow. all sorts of things that we do for our patients because they're, they have dreams, but they have limited times to realize them. And so we try to make them come true. Well, that's so fabulous. You, you mentioned in our correspondence, the hospice transforms an end of life journey. And I can see, I can see from these stories precisely how it does. Um, these, these wonderful older people, um, 
there in their homes um, with nobody uh, could really would really have a hard time actualizing any of these any of these dreams. But uh, with with the help and guidance of of trained professionals, um, they can really make their dreams come true. It sounds like. Yeah, well, you know, and I think people who go into hospice care, not just a hospice at the Valley, but, you know, worldwide, if you're in the hospice care field, it's really not a job to you. It's a calling. So when you answer your call every day, um, you're just by your nature is you're uplifting and positive, and that rubs off around everyone that you're with. And so I think our patients and families just gravitate toward that. You know, it's a light that comes into their house when the team is there. Yeah. It sounds like it's really a mission driven profession. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, here's, here's the question, um, that, that applies to virtually every arena, but how has COVID impacted the hospice arena? Oh my gosh. It was a one, two punch. Um, and I know it was for the restaurant industry as well, but here we have patients who are very vulnerable health-wise. And if they get a virus like that, uh, it, it's a disaster. So uh, our first goal was uh, to protect the safety of our patients, our families, and our our healthcare workers, uh, because they're going into multiple homes. So the first thing we had to do was get personal protection equipment, PPE, mm-hmm. and we had to have lots and lots of it so that it was different equipment every time you went into a different home or saw a different patient Yeah, uh, and be trained in the way to take it off and put it on so that it was done correctly and everything was always going to be sterile. And it was um, a frightening time. We had so many um, patients that uh, from the community that were referred to us with COVID that we turned two of our nine inpatient units and eventually three uh, into COVID units so that that's all that was there. And our teams were, specialized teams took care of them. But you know, the really, there were so many little things that impacted the care, everything from you're wearing a mask, right? So you're caring for people and all they can see is your eyes. Yeah. Um, which is hard. It is, uh, and they're wearing they're wearing gloves, so they can't even touch your skin. And human touch is such a healing thing. So it changed the care. They had to, you know, really emote with their eyes. They mm-hmm. had to, um, you know, still hold people's hands with that latex in between. Uh, they had to use their voices to be comforting because the smile wouldn't show. Uh, so there was. A, there was all of that, but then there was the the fact that people who had COVID in hospitals and assisted living facilities, they weren't allowed to permit visitors. And so families weren't seeing each other. So in our COVID units, we're in charge of those. They are our inpatient care homes. And we had the protocols in place that we believed we could safely let families be together at end of life by putting the family members in personal protective equipment. And so we did that so that they could be at the bedside at the end of their lives. Um, And when our crews, uh, our teams were allowed to go into uh, assisted living facilities, we would take our iPhones and we would connect them by FaceTime with their families who they hadn't seen in weeks or months, just so that there was some kind of contact. Uh, And it was our joy to do that, but you know, it really changed the way we delivered care, we had to innovate, we had to be creative. Um, and I, I think the stress of the unknown, especially in early days of the pandemic, when we didn't know anything about this virus, mm-hmm. I think it took a lot of courage. Absolutely. Well, a ton of courage. Um, you, you mentioned inpatient, um, and, and then you, and you've also talked about in-home care. Um, there's obviously a distinction there. At, at what point does a hospice patient transition to the inpatient setting? 98% of our care is in homes. That's where we want you to be, whether your home is an assisted living facility or your own private home or your, your child's home, whatever it is, your adult child's home. Um, the inpatient units are for short-term care. So if you're a caregiver of, of someone who is in hospice at home and you get the flu or you get COVID, 
you're not able to take care of your loved ones. So then we would take care of them short term in our facility mm-hmm. or say your loved one gets pneumonia and uh, it's, it's life threatening and it's not the disease that's killing them. It's pneumonia. And that's not why you want them to pass away. So they would come into our inpatient unit and it's 24 seven round the clock care mm-hmm. with ner- a staff of nurses and everybody. So that's why um, we have those. And then it's also for respite. You very often have family members who are absolutely exhausted sure. and they just need a few days and Medicare does pay for three to five days of respite so that um, this family member can, it sometimes they have to take a trip or sometimes they just need to sleep. Um, So there is that. So their short term, our goal is always to return you to your home. Sometimes people come to us at the very, very end of life, very, very sick with pneumonia or what else. And they do pass in our inpatient units because they're not, they're so close to end of life when they come, but that is never um, the goal. The goal is always to let you pass at home. Gotcha. What's the what's the percentage, would you say, of folks who return home after going? Uh, let's take respite off the table. Um, but those those who go to. Oh, most of them. Most yeah. Of them. The vast majority go home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's it's short term care. Now, there are families who once they get to the 24 seven care, uh, even though Medicare doesn't cover it past um, the short term. They will pay out of pocket to stay there because they maybe don't want their loved one to pass in their home. Hmm. Uh, They would prefer that it was in an inpatient unit. They would prefer the 24-7 care or they're so elderly, they don't think they can provide the 24-7 care at the very end. Uh, So there is that option. But the vast majority do return home. And Medicare pays, you said three to five days. Is that per year for respite or short term um yes for short term care yeah short term 3 to 5 days intense a year. yeah okay intense care yeah gotcha um so uh are there tools um, that you would that you could offer people uh to help with end of life issues uh, so i mean you have your team that comes in but then when the team leaves, the family members or the caregivers are still there. What advice do you give to the family caregivers? So they're the ones that are um, kind of the, uh, you would think they're not, they're, they might be getting overlooked, but the hospice philosophy of care is that the patient and the family are one unit of care. So you give them just as much support because they're, um, they're not losing their lives, but they're losing their mother. They're losing their husband. They're losing their child. So they're grieving. They're grieving as well. So that is why the social worker and the chaplain are there to help with the stages of grief, which begin, you know, way before the loved one actually passes. It's happening um, on the journey. Mm -hmm. So those tools um, of understanding grief, giving yourself permission to grieve, Understanding when one day you feel fine and the next day you can't even function, that's normal. All of those things are tools to help you get through the journey. Having someone that you can talk to at any time, call at any time um, to try and understand what's happening. We have community support groups, grief support groups as well for our whole community. So even if you weren't on hospice at the Valley Care, say your loved one died suddenly and there was no time to call hospice, doesn't mean you're not grieving. So we also offer no cost community grief support. Right now, because of COVID, it is virtual, um, but you just call us and then we get some information to find out if you've lost a wife or a child or whatever group would be the best for you. And then you can participate um, in a safe space virtually. But um, the tool is to understand the journey, which the team is an expert at helping you do that and supporting you through it. But we've also... um, kind of brought mindfulness meditation to the community and to our families and also to our staff. Our staff does it as well. Hmm. And it's a kind of meditation that has been scientifically shown to um, increase quality of life, decrease pain, stress, anxiety, uh, increase wellness. Um, So it it helps. I love it. I think um, it's just, it's deep breathing. Mm -hmm. It's not thinking about the past, which you can do nothing about or the present, which you have no control over. It's being present in the moment, kind of the way your dog thinks. Yeah. Your dog is all about right now. Right. And that's what mindfulness is. So just enjoy the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what does your mindfulness meditation practice look like? 
So mindfulness meditation, you know, if anybody's listening and wants to try it, they can go to hov.org, type in mindfulness, and we have some practices right on the computer. So you can just sit at your desk, close your eyes. We have one minute, three minute, five minute, 10 minute. I think we even have an hour one, but you basically are closing your eyes and then a mindfulness practitioner will talk you through. And it's, it's, it's feeling what's happening around you, feeling the chair underneath your legs, Mm -hmm. feeling your hair as you, as the wind blows it, if you're outside your breath in, your breath out, every muscle, they talk you through it. So you're only focusing on what they say. Mm -hmm. So your mind doesn't wander. And being able to focus on what they're saying and being in the present is is something that the more you do it, the more you catch yourself in real life, stopping your head when it goes to the future. Oh, I got to do this. I got to get this. I'm supposed to go to the grocery store. Oh my gosh, I forgot the money for the field trip, blah, 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 blah. When you start to do that, your practice of mindfulness will take you back to the moment where you are right now, what your chair feels like, what your your eyes feel like, what the sun feels like on your face, and you can calm your mind and your kind of your soul. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the you know layman's description of it. There, yeah. it's a very scientific study. Yeah, um, but it, it really is just living in the present. Yeah, and it's so much it's so much easier said than done. I've yes, <laughs> I've been practicing myself for well probably six years now, and um, wow, that's great. Yeah, I it's become a big part of my life, and um, it's typically you know one of the first things I do in the morning, um, about thirty minutes, and um, it's really just two rules: it's to focus on your breath. And then come back to your breath when you realize you've been distracted, when you realize you're, you've gone down a train of thought. Train of thought. And it, it really does help uh, keep you from, you know, rehashing the past or rehearsing for the future and just staying in the moment. And, and in the moment, there's really nothing wrong. Um, my mind tells me there is almost invariably my mind tells me there's some there's a problem I mean it's almost as if the brain is a it's a tool to solve problems and if there's not a problem there it's going to create a problem so it can solve one and um, (laughs) with mindfulness we we can we can learn to put that at bay and and realize that hey there there really isn't a problem um, right here in right. this moment. I, it's if okay. you're sitting in traffic, you know, in rush hour and you just do that breathing, it's amazing how much better you feel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, are, there's a variety of, uh, of, of schools of meditation. Um, uh, do you, do you practice any other meditation? I don't, I, um, like mindfulness because our practitioners here are so good and I can access the session whenever I want online. Yeah, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Um, so, um, so your, your caregivers, they practice meditation. You, you teach it to, um, the, you teach it to the hospice patients themselves and then your whole team, they they practice meditation. That's that's kind of a, a staple of your of your process. Oh yeah, it's a very strong component. But we also think it's important for the community to have wellness. So five years ago, we partnered with Phoenix Art Museum, and every Thursday at noon, uh, one of our practitioners goes over and does free mindfulness. It's usually in the courtyard when the weather's nice, but when it's super hot or cold or rainy, they move it inside one of the galleries in front of a beautiful piece of art, which is gorgeous. Hmm. Uh, And they practice mindfulness for an hour. It's uh, 12 to one, I believe, uh, every Thursday uh, at Phoenix Art Museum. Right now it's virtual. Uh, So on HOV.org, there is a Zoom link. And um, Tyler, I I, I invite you to try it. Yeah, I'm writing this down right now. HOV Zoom link, 12 to 1 on Thursdays. I'd love uh-huh. to try it. I would love to try Great. it. Yeah. My kids, my kids do. I have well, some of my kids do. My, my 16 year old son does it with me at night and um, my nine year old daughter, my seven year old daughter. 
and and it's about we do about 10 minutes but they've probably logged i don't know i mean we've been doing it for about three years now and so I mean, my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old they've i mean they've logged hours and hours and hours i mean probably days worth of of meditation and wow and what really a gift it. to give somebody that young the ability to calm their mind that's a great gift yeah i didn't know if, the, if it would if it would take or not but they it's like they can't go to sleep without it it's like it's part of the routine and they they really really love it so um i'd strongly encourage anybody to give it a try and, and check out this hov zoom link or any other resource it, there, there there are a lot of resources out there uh, and it's a fantastic tool i can't speak i can't speak yeah. enough about it yeah we do one on saturday mornings at 9 30 as well so when you go you'll see a thursday at noon link and a saturday at 9 30 a.m link wonderful and there's something powerful about um about doing something in a community doing something in a group um you know you, there are benefits that you get when you're practicing alone and then there are benefits that you get from practicing in a community and the last thing i'll say about it is there's a reason it's called practice um i think the point is not to become a good meditator but to um you know become better at life and so you're practicing on the cushion or on your chair or whatever it might be so that you can actually um, be more mindful when you're in your life right mm -hmm. so. yeah mindful is is um, the adjective that's what you want to be yeah yeah what a great thing that's I love to hear that um, so w invariably um, you're you're dealing you're you're in a heavy profession and so you're dealing with death uh, at, at some point i mean that's that's kind of um that's kind of the end the end of hospice um so what what do you what advice do you give to caregivers uh, to cope with the loss of their loved ones well they they have our support and our, our bravement counselor's support who can walk them through the stages and uh, help them see that it their journey of grief is gonna take as long as it takes and it's different for everyone, um, but they will get through it and they will find a new normal. It's not gonna be the same um, because when you lose someone that you love with all your heart and soul, uh, nothing's the same, everything's right. changed. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, someone told me once a long time ago, we're all dying. Yeah. All of us are dying. Some Absolutely. are just closer to the end than others. Um, we don't get to live forever. It's just, you know, when it's unexpected or it seems cruel, uh, um, maybe it happened too soon. They were too young. It was a terrible illness. Those are all um, painful realities that most of us can't get through by ourselves. And so having um, a grief expert help you get through it, a bereavement counselor. And then the support groups are great too, because you see other people um, at different stages and, you know, they'll tell you, oh my gosh, I was just like you three months ago, but trust me, the sun shines again. I'm so much better now. And you know, some of these people at the grief support groups come back, um, you know, years later, they're still participating to be that light for other people. We also have a new song center for grieving children because children, and these are all no cost programs for the community. Children grieve differently than adults. They don't cry. They act out, you know, they pick fights or if they're in high school, they drop out. Maybe they're smoking pot. They, whatever they're doing, they're um, acting out. But if they can go to a group and say, um, you know, I lost my dad and three other kids go, yeah, I did too. Oh, and I lost my mom or I lost my mom and my dad. It's, they're not alone anymore. Um, and so it, it can really, really help. So um, both those programs are community grief support and our new song center for grieving children. Um, the numbers of people need counseling, whether or not they've ever been cared for by hospice of the Valley. Um, we're happy to get them in a, a, a good support group to help them heal. How powerful. I've had a lot of folks on the on the podcast talking about grief lately because grief is such a relevant topic. And, and really, um, 
we're all grieving. And I, 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 I learned this from uh, a previous guest. Um, we're we're kind of grieving the loss of what's called the assumptive world. And, and you know, prior pre-pandemic, we kind of knew what we were going to do every day. And all that's gone. And there's a lot of unpredictability. And so we we all are are grieving the loss of of what we used to do. Um, probably not to the same extent uh, that, they, that we grieve when we lose a loved one, but there is a lot of grief right now. And just just being able to identify it and know what it is, say know that oh, this is grief that I'm experiencing, uh, can be can be very powerful. And I imagine mm-hmm. that having people around you that have gone through it, like you said, and say, and can tell you, hey, it gets better. That must instill a great degree of hope. It just has to. Yeah, because you you think that there can't be a tomorrow. You know, the other part of that is the pandemic has definitely had an effect on all of us. Uh, A lot of people have high depression rates right now. They're feeling more isolated, especially caregivers than ever before because they can't have visitors. And if you lost a loved one in a hospital and weren't able to visit or be there, when they passed, you have a horrible feeling and you, you may even feel guilty or, you know, helpless more than, than you would have, uh, had you been able to be there for them. So the grief is compounded and more complex. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. Um, my, my guess is, you know, just given the, the, the increase in, in Alzheimer's and dementia, you probably help a lot of people with dementia. What does HOV Hospice of the Valley offer as support for those caring for somebody with dementia? Well, we are on um, kind of a scary incline in terms of dementia cases. We're going to see a 43% increase in Arizona alone by the year 2050 um, because we have an aging population. And right now, a third of our patients, in addition to whatever else they have, have dementia. So they have two diagnoses. They may have heart disease and dementia, cancer and dementia. So we really see where dementia care has to be part of what we do because it's going to affect so many people in our community and already has. Mm -hmm. So we applied for a grant and I'm happy to say we got it. It is a three-year federal grant that allows us to offer dementia care and education free of charge to our community. So if you have someone in your family who is um, at any stage with any kind of dementia, Alzheimer's or Lewy body or vascular dementia, whatever it is, um, we have teams that go in and they, they kind of help the caregiver who is really what the person that needs helping because as long as the person with dementia is cared for and feels safe, they're good. It's the caregiver who's exhausted, lonely, isolated, stressed, afraid, um, and doesn't know what's going to happen next. What does this mean? Why is he doing this? Why, how, what do I do when they want to go for a walk at two in the morning? Why is he asking me what he wants for lunch 14 times in the last five minutes? And I just fed him all of those things. Just, um, if you don't understand the disease and don't know how to act, uh, you don't need to reality correct. So when they say something wrong, like the sky is green and the grass is blue, you don't correct them. You just go with it. And it releases all the stress and makes life better. And they won't remember that they said it wrong and they won't understand that they said it wrong. So there's no point in correcting except stressing everyone out. And people can also tell, even if they're not understanding the words or maybe don't even know who you are, when you speak sharply, they know they're being shamed. And when you have that dynamic in a home and then you say to the person, okay, now we have to eat or now it's time to take your shower. Now we have to get dressed. They don't trust you. They don't feel safe with you. They don't really want to cooperate. And it sets up bad dynamics. Whereas if they understand, if you understand that it doesn't do any good to correct reality and you just go with it and there's never a no, it's always yes, but, you know, they say, I want to go outside. Yes, but let's have a, cookie first Mm. and distract them or whatever you have to do the techniques that they teach you um, and I'm not an expert but our dementia educators are Mm -hmm. they go into the home with this program and they and they teach that and the lovely part of it too is that also provides a volunteer who's trained 
to be with dementia patients so that the caregiver can get a little bit of rest. Four hours to go to a movie, go to lunch, go to the doctor, go in the other room and just read a book. Uh, So it gives them a break. So it's a wonderful program. It's called Supportive Care for Dementia. And folks can just call and um, sign, we'll get you signed up. Wow, that's powerful. And I I learned that um, I, 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 nobody taught me that, but with my grandmother, she lived to be 102, and oh. the, the last couple of years of her life, um, severe dementia, and uh, I started out correcting her, and then I found that it was just much more fun to play along, you know. I'll just yeah. rather than try to force her into my reality, I'll just join her reality. And, and, you know, whatever it was, we just, I just went with it. And, um, we, we both had, that's a perfect. Time. We both had a better time. Yeah, that's perfect. You know, and I should mention in the Arcadia area, 44th street and Indianola. So Indianola is just South of Indian school. We're um, building a dementia care and education campus yeah. where there'll be assisted living, um, There'll be adult daycare next to a childcare of preschoolers and they'll interact because that interaction is beautiful. Kids that young don't understand dementia and they don't even notice it. And older people with dementia just really respond to children. It brings them joy. Uh, There's going to be a community education center there so we can educate the community about these techniques and um, how to how to live well with dementia. So, and that should open in uh, fall of this year. Fingers crossed that construction stays on schedule. Oh, congratulations! That's fantastic. Thank you. That's We're excited. Oh, I am too. That's great. Um, and it's it'll be great for it'll be great for the kids as well as for the 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 residents. So yeah, it'll be great for everybody. Um, so you, you, you work in a heavy industry. Um, what do you do to take care of yourself so that you can best take care of others? Well, luckily I love the mission, comfort, dignity, compassionate care. So that sustains me and I work with caregivers. So we care for each other. Uh, we have a culture of caring at Hospice of the Valley. So we care for each other as much as we care for our patients and family. So we're there to support each other. And I can honestly say that when you, people say all the time, oh, isn't it depressing? Aren't you sad? I can tell you, I was much more sad and depressed working in news. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's so much more fulfilling because you lay your head on the pillow at the end of the day. And it's it's not like you've read terrible headlines that you are powerless to change. You actually made people's lives better uh, today. And so there, there's a, you've helped someone. So there is that immense satisfaction. And I can honestly say it really does put life in perspective. I mean, I can have um, plumbing go out. I can have my car on the fritz and I don't get, I just don't get rattled the way I used to about it because I can see what other families are going through and I'm still healthy and I don't have stage four cancer. And um, it puts life in perspective. People on a hospice journey are very wise and um, I can learn so much from them and I have, uh, but, but one of them is perspective. Like don't waste your time on the silly stuff. Uh, just enjoy life. And so I actually feel very lucky to be in hospice care at this point in my life and, and hope to spend the rest of my life um, doing this career and doing this beautiful work. Um, so I, I don't really feel like I need to do anything special to take care of myself except to be, to be grateful and um, just keep helping others because that's very, very fulfilling. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, gratitude, perspective, and service. I mean, if you if you hit those pillars every day, it's pretty hard to go to bed at night not feeling good about yourself. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, I know you're a very busy lady, um, <laughs> and so I won't I won't take any more of your time. It's been it's been so great talking to you. Um, before I let you go, is there anything that I, that I didn't ask that maybe I should have asked? 
you know, just that we do have lots of community services, senior placement if folks have parents that they think need a little more supervised living, can't live on their own and they don't know where to go. Sometimes they'll sign, um, you know, contracts with placement agencies that are quite expensive. We do that same thing for free and it's for anyone in the community, but there are all kinds of community services that we can help with um, that are no cost. And we just want folks to know that help with your healthcare decisions and your living wills and your medical power of attorney forms. All of that stuff is, is free and we have people that can help you fill it out. So if anybody wants more information, we talked about so much, Tyler, uh, their heads are probably spinning. They can go to hov.org and type a word into the search bar, dementia or whatever it is. And all kinds of information will come up that they can kind of, look at at their own speed. And um, they can always call us. Um, unlike other hospices, we are 24-7. So we have nurses on duty 24-7. You can always call us even two o'clock in the morning on Christmas day, you right. will get a live person wow. and you will be able to talk to a nurse if you have a question. So we're, we're here to help and serve the community. Well, you've really inspired me. I'm going to check out your mindfulness links and um, I'm really going to consider uh, volunteering as a hospice worker. That, that sounds like a very fulfilling. Um, oh, my gosh. Fulfilling We'd love it. And your teenagers, um, when they get to be high school, we have teen volunteers. Oh. And they are amazing with our dementia patients. Wow. Well, I do have two teenagers. And so um, I think that they would get a lot from it. Uh, I think anybody would. So you've you've inspired me uh, just hearing that. I, I, you know, I think of hospice as being such a heavy industry, but hearing the lightness in your voice and hearing how happy you are, um, it's it's actually changed my my perspective. So, I think so. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome, and and thank you for um, having me as a guest and and letting me share um, all the ways that we can help. Absolutely. Maybe we'll have you back sometime. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Tyler. Bye now. You've been listening to the Well Beings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.